my concern is that we're, we're only going to have a couple hours, so there'll probably be a lot more to see and do than we'll have time to do. But really? No, be, like fun. three hours is plenty of time to see all of Manhattan. <laughs> That's what you think. <laughs> for me, it is. You, you get me there for three hours, I'm like, come on, I want to go home. <laughs> and now... It's time to sit back and enjoy the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Broadcast. Stop it! Genesis! Oh, what's in the box? Disenfranchised by the modern comics industry, producer Paul Spitaro, Dr. Bill Robinson, and Scott H. Gardner now ply the time stream in a never-ending quest to rediscover and reconnect with that unique brand of fun and excitement that can only truly be found in good old-fashioned, randomly selected comic book back issues. Journey with them now. Back. Back. To the bins. I got nowhere else to go. I got nowhere else to go. I got nothing else. Hi, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Back to the Bins. I'm a guest this week, David Pascarella. Usually when you hear my voice, I'm talking about James Bond with Paul. Speaking of Paul... Here's our producer, Paul Spataro. Hello. How are you, Dave? Great. Great to be here. And, of course, one of our, one of our founders, Scott H. God. Hello. He's, How's it going? He's the, he's the Odo of our podcast. <laughs> oh, God. He's a founder. <laughs> so I guess we're talking about war comics since I'm here, right? Uh oh, we're in trouble. How'd that go are. over? That episode went over like a lead balloon. I bet. I think the episode was yeah, good. I was... think the comics weren't so great. <laughs> but yeah, I think the episode good was good. On it, was... Yeah, we had a number of, uh, of feedbacks. You know, saying uh, you know something to the effect of, "Hey, you guys covered some war comics. Something fine. You know, finally something I care about." Type of thing. So yeah. They just want to party like 1945. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, today we're doing another theme, though. Only we're doing the first part of the theme. And kind of this this was kind of your idea, Dave. Even though I think you just planned on bringing an issue. Yeah, but wiser minds than mine expanded upon it. I don't know if I'd be so quick to to give the uh, the categorization of wise, but I'll, I'll just take it and run for now. <laughs> so what are we talking about? We are going to cover the Superman reboot by John Byrne. I almost feel bad not having the uh, third degree Byrne guys on for this, uh, but you know, sorry guys. Uh, so we're going to do the Man oh, of Steel miniseries. Maybe for one of the. The, the future installment. Yeah, it's it's a six-part miniseries, so the thought process is we're going to do three two-issue episodes. So today we're going to, obviously, because those of you who are mathematically minded, such as myself, we're going to do issues one and two. Huh? Uh, you know what we should I'm do? I'm told there'd be no math. What? 
<laughs> no, we should do. We should cover all the episodes from the crisis to the crisis. I don't think that's ever been done before. Actually, before people start writing in, I'm well aware that it's been done. I was, I was going to give some sort of like snarky. I don't think it's been done right or something like that. That's that oh, would be that would that no, would not be that no, would not be correct. No. That would I would have said that just to be funny, not to be accurate. So we'll leave it at that. Anyway, uh, today we're covering the first two issues, and we rolled the dice, and Scott got issue number one. Yes. Now, I don't think, Dave, I, I could be wrong. Correct me if I'm wrong, Dave, but I don't think you had any idea when you proposed this that, uh, that this has long been something right up there with, like, Logan's Run or, or the Death of Superboy storyline uh, that I have long wanted to cover in, in podcasting. Um, it, it's funny because I, when I threw it out there, I thought to myself, I didn't think you, this was ever covered on bins, and this is your wheelhouse. <laughs> totally. It's totally in my wheelhouse. I mean, this this is my favorite iteration of Superman is, is Burns Superman. You know, comic book Superman is Burns Superman. Um, and it is something I, I've long wanted to talk about, you know, and, and really do in depth and everything. Um, but I just hadn't for, you know, gotten around to it for a number of reasons. Um, one of the big ones being is that I didn't want to step on from crisis to crisis, which, you know, for those that aren't aware is a, is a show that, um, you know, has done and, and is doing, uh, exactly what, you know, you guys were talking about of covering, you know, the, the, basically the burn and starting with Burns reboot covering, you know, Superman from his reinvention in the eighties all the way through, you know, to the end of that character with the, with infinite crisis. Um, so I didn't want to step on their toes because I, I know how much it irritates me when, when I feel like I've put my stamp on something you know, podcasting wise that I'm like, okay, I, I did the definitive version of this. Nobody else touch it. And then, you know, 10 other podcasts do it. It, it. it can be kind of frustrating. And I didn't want to do that to those guys, but it's been a long time now since they ever covered this. And I know that many other shows have covered it in the meantime. So I'm itching to, to get into it and talk about it myself. Cause this one's uh, this one's pretty special to me. So anyway, uh, we'll go ahead. We'll dive right into this here. So, Man of Steel number one was released without a cover date on July 10th, 1986, and sported a 75 cent price tag as well as two different covers. One cover emblazoned with a header reading "The Comics Event of the Century" uh, above a, a massive S Shield logo presents a beautiful shot of Clark Kent standing off to the right of the cover ripping open his ugly brown outfit to reveal his Superman uniform underneath whilst a strange object rockets away from the exploding planet Krypton in the background. The other cover, emblazoned with a header reading Special Collector's Edition and a silver-lettered Man of Steel logo that I think is really sharp, features an extreme close-up of Clark Kent's chest as he rips open his customary blue suit to reveal his Superman uniform with a large, prominent S-shield in the words, The Legend Begins, in the bottom right corner. Uh, that particular version has no UPC symbol uh, down in the corner of it. So 
my understanding is that one was for the direct market, the, the special collector's edition, and the other one was the, was the newsstand version, which actually had two versions of its own. We'll talk more about that later. Uh, the issue is written and penciled by John Byrne, uh, and that was a huge deal at the time. Inks by Dick Giordano, colors by Tom Ziuko, letters by uh, John Costanza, editor was Andy Helfer. Prologue, From Out the Green Dawn. On the planet Krypton, Jor-El uh, returns home from a survey of his world and is greeted by his floating robot servants. He inquires about the child and is informed that the Matrix has been placed in the third level laboratory. Jor-El heads there, leaving instructions for the Lady Lara to be brought to him when she arrives. In the lab, Jor-El stops at the Matrix and looks within, where he sees the faintest outline of a child inside. My son, he says, before his attentions are pulled away by a shout from Lady Lara, who is shocked to learn that what she has been told is true. Jorel sent one of his servants to remove the matrix containing their unborn son from the gestation chambers. Jorel, as the father's child, claims that this is his right, and Lara asks what reason would he have for invoking a long-forgotten law from centuries ago, and why is he endangering their unborn child? Jorel informs her that far from endangering their son, he intends to save him, even as Krypton itself and all her people will soon perish when the pressures building inside their world ultimately destroy it by sending him to a distant world, not unlike the Krypton of millennia past, a world the natives call Earth. While Jor-El sings the praises and extols the virtues of this world and its peoples, Lara is horrified at the prospects of sending their son to a hell where the environment is wild and uncontrolled and the inhabitants, in her view, are savages. Jor-El explains that the yellow sunlight of Earth, combined with his Kryptonian physiology, will grant their child great powers. In time, he will become the supreme being on that planet, almost the god. Laura asks, then he will rule them, he will shape them to proper Kryptonian ways, to which Jor-El replies with a non-capital, perhaps, before diverting her attention to the Matrix, where his robots are outfitting it with a hyper-light drive. Laura uh, begins to ask if there is no other way, but suddenly there is no more time for anything. The final eruptions have begun, and Jor-El launches his unborn son into space as the planet Krypton dies. Chapter 1, The Secret In Smallville, Kansas, Clark Kent scores the winning touchdown, his 10th, winning the game for his team. His jubilant coach tells Jonathan Kent, Clark's father, that the boy is going to make millions as a pro. But Pa can't help, uh, can't help but notice the long faces on Clark's teammates. Clark is hoisted up onto the shoulders of the cheering, adoring crowd, and Pa Kent looks on disapprovingly. Things settle down, and Clark, spotting his father, says he's glad he could make it and asks if he saw the last touchdown. Pa ignores the question and tells Clark they have to talk. Now. On the car ride home, Clark asks his father if he's mad at him about something, to which the older Kent says he's not mad exactly, but a little disappointed. Clark is confused as to how his father could be disappointed in him as he just won the big game and almost completely by himself. But that's exactly what Paul wants to talk about. 
He takes Clark to a fallow field that he'd fenced off years ago and told Clark never to play in. There, he has Clark lift away a heavy door covering a massive hole in the earth, revealing the rocket and birthing matrix that brought him to Earth. Clark is stunned to learn that he is, for all intents and purposes, adopted. Paul tells of how, one night 18 years ago, he and his wife were battening down the hatches for an upcoming uh, winter storm when a streak from out of the sky caught their attention. They followed the fireball to this field, to this spot, where they found this strange device, and upon inspection, it opened to reveal inside a brand new baby boy. Martha, having trialed and failed for eight years at this point to have a child, claimed him, and that was that. The blizzard, which turned out to be the storm of the century for these parts, acted as the perfect cover, leaving the Kents housebound for five months. By the time it was over, Martha was able to introduce little Clark to their friends and neighbors as their own natural child with no one the wiser. Paul recounts how happy they were with this perfect little boy and how little by little they began to realize that he was very special and blessed with powers and abilities far beyond those of mortal men. Clark tries to approach the rocket ship seeking more answers, but is suddenly weakened and feels faint. Paul helps him to the car and they return to the Kent home. There, Clark realizes that despite his upbringing and the lessons of his parents, he's been doing exactly what they tried to tell him he should never do, place himself above others or make others feel useless because of his special gifts. He decides then and there that it's time to stop and face his responsibilities. He sets out into the world to make amends and use his powers for good, even if he must do so in secret. Chapter 2, The Exposure. Seven years later, Pa Kent comes into the kitchen one morning to find his wife hard at work on the secret scrapbook she keeps of all her son's secret heroic feats. But one look at the morning paper reveals that the secret is out. Mysterious Superman saves space planes, screams the headline of the Smallville Post. A noise overhead tells them that someone is in Clark's room upstairs, and Pa sneaks up club in hand to find his son, Clark, sitting all alone in the dark. They wanted a piece of me, Pa. They all wanted a piece of me. Clark tells of living in Metropolis these past few years and coming to feel the city is his home. Yesterday, as part of the city's 250th anniversary celebration, NASA was bringing its experimental space plane to Metropolis. But a meteor collision with another aircraft sent the massive spaceship into a death spiral. Without hesitation, Clark streaked to the rescue and caught and landed the vehicle all by himself. Before he could decide what to do next, Lois Lane, a newspaper reporter aboard the ship to cover the story, poked her head out of the hatch and demanded he hold it right there. The pair locked gazes, and for just a moment, Clark felt something pass between them like a spark. But then they were descended upon by a crawling, excuse me, clawing, pulling, screaming crowd, all of them wanting Clark to do something, say something, sell something. He flew away, trying to come to terms with what had happened. He still wants to help people, but, he says, I just don't know how to deal with it. Pa Kent lights his pipe and, with a knowing smile, says, I think I do. Epilogue, the superhero. Later, Clark, Clark and Pa check on Ma Kent's progress at the sewing machine. They show her a stylized S-shield design that they've come up with, and she incorporates it into her project. 
Meanwhile, Clark shows his mother the disguise he and his father have cooked up for the new Clark Kent. Slick back hair, a pair of Pa's old spectacles, a slight uh, stoop, and ta-da, he looks like a whole different man. All right. So long as he's careful, never let on that he's he has two separate identities, Pa cautions. Finished, uh, Clark dons the suit his mother has made for him. The whole thing looks just fine, he says, kissing his mother's forehead. It's got exactly the symbolic look I wanted. So from now on, whenever there are people who need my very special kind of help, it won't be a job for plain old Clark Kent. And on the final glorious full-page spread, he takes to the sky proclaiming it'll be a job for Superman. Next issue, the story of the century in two weeks. Trying to know uh, what what your guys' uh, history is with uh, with this particular uh, issue and series. I did not come across this until it was a few years old. Uh, as I've said on many many occasions, I had stopped collecting around the time of Crisis, and then did not come back until the death of Superman. So this was all, uh, you know. The burn, the burn run on Superman was kind of ancient history by the time I started reading it. Uh, and I think that lessened its impact for me. It's not that I don't think it's great. I do. But I think if I had been reading it as it came out, I would have been more, more just more enthralled by it. Um, this, this was just, for me, these books were a very enjoyable read that I could see the quality of. But it wasn't that whole new world unfolding that people had if they were reading it as it was coming out uh so you know for me it was okay superman's been reestablished and he's back you know in 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 the world the way he should be in my mind and now i'm just reading how they you know how they brought him back so i think it you know like i said i think it took away some of the uh the excitement level that i might have had otherwise but just the same i think it's really well done uh i gotta say i, I hate lara in this you know, she's she's just I don't know. You know, is he gonna rule them all? I I, I just don't like her. Oh, they're very not likable, the Kryptonians. Yeah, but Jor-El is still kind of likable. You can kind of understand his motivations, and and he seems more uh, for 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 an, an ironic statement, he seems a little more down to earth. <laughs> <laughs> Dave, what's your history with this? I have such precise memories of this. I would buy my comics off the spinner rack in the candy store, which they, they didn't get everything. But my cousin had a comic shop near his house. And when we'd come out to visit, you know, we'd go to the comic shop because that was like a big deal. And I remember uh, the crisis had passed, and I'm pretty sure there was still issues coming out before they wrapped up the series. And then all of a sudden, you know, this, this was on the stands. We went to the comic shop on New Dorp Lane. It was called The Merchant of Venus. And they had the first two issues. And uh, I bought them off the rack, so to speak. Went home, read them both. I was kind of torn with them, though, to be, to be honest with you. Because... While this is my favorite version of Superman, you know, reading this this first issue, it was like, 
But what the hell happened to Krypton? Because for me, yeah. it was, I was waiting for, you know, the bright colors, you know, like the Buck Rogers type of, the original Buck Rogers, not the Gil Gerard Buck Rogers, with the headbands and all that. And I was a little turned off. But I did like where it went. It's it's funny you say that, because that's one of my notes. I, I, I kind of went page by page, panel by panel, so we'll, we'll kind of discuss this book in order, but uh, I'll give my history on this real quick. Um, I was super, super excited about this coming out. I, I was, this this was me at like the, the height of my, you know, excitement for, for comics, you know, and, and buying things brand new, and at this point, I was buying comics in kind of a weird, like hybrid way. Um, there, there was a comic shop in Watertown by this point um, that I would go to and everything, but they were very hit and miss because they, they were kind of a new entity and they were kind of, you know, finding their legs kind of thing. So it was still a mixture of the comic shop and then all the newsstands that I knew, you know, that sold comics, you know, to hunt things down. So. I can remember, you know, buying multiple copies of this and that's how I got, you know, both covers and everything because I, you know, this was one of those things. There was no way in hell I was going to miss this book coming out because I had so looked forward to not just this specific thing of, you know, John Byrne Superman reinvention, but just Superman in general um, being reinvented and being reinvigorated and just being super again because you know i grew up with the pre-crisis superman and and i love superman you know i was i was a huge fan but honestly it was really it was superman the movie that made me the the diehard superman fan that i am i mean that's still what i look to as like that's like the perfect iteration of superman and i can remember as a kid you know, seeing that movie and just aching for the comics to be more like that. Now, I mean, I don't mean like a literal and like not like to mutate to be just like the movie, but just to have more of that feel and more of that flavor for Superman to be cool. And, you know, by the time, you know, I was a kid really discovering comics and really getting into comics, really getting into Superman, Superman, um, and I think Burns said something to the effect in one of his interviews, Superman was like your dad. You know, he was he was an older character. He wasn't young. He wasn't necessarily hip anymore and that sort of thing. And I just, I wanted him to be more like that. So when you get little glimpses of that type of iteration with like Neil Adams or Jose Luis Garcia Lopez or, or Rich Buckler, you know, when I when I get those little tastes, it just made me ache for it that much more. It's like I was always like, why is like Kurt Swan still drawing this character? Why isn't it the, the big guns, the big names? And here, all of a sudden, the top guy in comics at the time, John friggin Byrne, was taken over Superman. I mean, I, I just couldn't have been more excited for this. So, yeah, for me, this was a huge milestone in, in you know, my comics collecting life was when this issue came out. I just ate it up. Um, but, you know, you, got, you commented on Krypton. Um, while I love this, and this is my favorite, you know, comic book incarnation of Superman, 
Uh, I'm like you. There, you know, it's not perfect. There are things that that bother me about it, um, and there were things that right out of the gate were were kind of troubling about it. Um, Krypton's definitely a big one for me. I, I love the look of it. I love the aesthetic of it, but Lara is really kind of troublesome in it because she's not a likable character at all. Um, and I, I really miss the council, you know, the Krypton and, you know, gentlemen, Krypton is doomed. I mean, that to me is an iconic moment of Superman's origin is Jor-El standing before the council and being laughed at, you know, they, they think he's a kook and he's right. And you know, he's right. And, but they don't believe it. And their hubris in believing themselves to be, you know, above such things. And, you know, we've, we've mastered this planet and, you know, we're, we're perfectly safe. Jor-El is wrong. That to me is, is, you know, kind of mythic on a level of like the hubris involved with like the Titanic disaster. You know, they, they, well, she's unsinkable. God herself couldn't sink her. You know, the Kryptonian council had that attitude. And it doomed their planet. They could have possibly saved everybody, and instead they saved nobody. You know, Jor-El saved one person. You know, his son. Well, and, I, I know, to me, there's. I understood Krypton was just shifting its orbit. <laughs> but you know what I mean? There's just there's something really mythic about that, and I I think this version loses that a bit. I mean, in fact, it really didn't hit me until I was sitting down to, to really synopsize this and make my notes for it, that not only do we lose the council, Jorah and Lara are the only Kryptonians we even see in this. You know, and another great thing from, you know, Superman lore is when you would see the planet begin to crumble and you would see people dying, you know, buildings toppling over and Kryptonians falling, you know, that's a big part of like Superman. The movie is, you know, all the Kryptonians tumbling through space and all that before the planet blows. You don't get any of that. So, I mean, it really, to a certain extent, it kind of lessens the impact of this because you're not made to feel anything for the planet. Um, I was just reading, um, an old issue of, uh, of Amazing Heroes today. It was uh, uh, an interview with John Byrne about this series. And he, uh, at some point, I don't know if he collaborated with or he just let her read, uh, you know, the treatment or the, you know, preview the first issues or whatever. But uh, Wendy Peeney, who uh, worked on ElfQuest way back in the day, apparently she and Byrne are friends, and she said that this was a Krypton, you know, after reading this, she said this was a Krypton that deserved to die. And, you know, she could be right. It's not a very likable place. Lara is definitely not a very likable person. But I, I think, it, you know, the story loses something when you don't feel anything for the death of an entire civilization. So th this is one aspect where I'm not sure necessarily uh, improved on the formula but it's one of the, it's one of the rare instances of of this reinvention where I don't think he you know he made it better than it was well, I'm not sure I I don't think he made it more likable but I think part of his goal was to make it more alien uh, yes. that in a lot of a lot of the previous versions it was a little too relatable 
And I think that was his goal. Now, you could argue whether or not that was a good goal or not. And I think that, you know, that comes down to a matter of your preferences. But I think he accomplished the goal he set out to because he did make it more alien. And in making it more alien, he also made it more sterile and made it something that you wouldn't. What what he did, I, I, I feel like he did was he took what they did in Superman the movie because that was a very sterile environment with mostly unlikable, pompous people in it with the exception of, well, maybe with the exception of Lara and that's it because even Marlon Brando's a little pompous. Uh, but, you know, they did it there and then I think he took it to the next step to make them almost, you know, like pre-programmed uh, which is something they did pick up in the Man of Steel movie. You know, they did play on that in, in that film, uh, like it or not. Uh, but I, I, like I said, I, I think he whether or not that should have been his goal is subject to debate. Whether or not he accomplished the goal, I don't think so. I think I think he absolutely accomplished it, and I don't think it's subject to debate. Right. No, I, I agree with you there. It's just, for me, I, I think that I think it was greatly improved upon with like the origin episode of, uh, of Superman, the animated series, for example, where uh, I think a lot of this aesthetic was, was borrowed for that. And it, it has a lot of the same beats, but I think something's lost when you don't, I, I think you can portray very well that, the Kryptonians, you know, like the council, for example, aren't very likable people and that there's a lot of hubris there and everything. And, and it makes them kind of unlikable. And you almost maybe have a slight sense of, well, you brought this on. You, you deserve this because you brought it on yourself. You ignored the signs or whatever. But, but I think a story, you know, an origin story of Superman where you don't feel anything for his parents, for, you know, for them that I don't. I don't know. To me, that that's that's somewhat lacking. I, you know, one thing I really would have liked to have seen in this was, you know, to me, it's a classic scene of Jorah and Lara clinging to each other as they watch the rocket escape. You know, knowing that they're they're doomed, they're about to die. That is so ingrained in my memory from just about every origin story of Superman we'd had prior to this point. And in this one, they don't. Um, I mean, they, they don't love each other. They're not. Well, for example, um, I was looking on uh, the, the uh, DC wiki and I took a quick look at the synopsis that they had for this episode, or for this issue rather, and it said something on there to the effect of uh, I'm trying to find it because I had it quoted here, but now I'm not seeing it. But it, it said where, uh, oh, here it is. On the planet Krypton, scientist Jor-El returns home, uh, home to inform his wife. And I stopped right there. I'm like, well, they're not paying very much attention to their own comic because they're not even married, you know. And something I read somewhere said that, uh, it, you know, there's it creates the impression here that they may not even have met prior to this point. So I don't know. It, it just, to me that it, it loses just a bit with that, but I know why he did this the way that he did it, because he was, as you say, trying to get away from that Buck Rogery version of Krypton, you know, that 
you know, from, from what I read, his thinking was that, uh, you know, it, it was like Krypton was like the paradise and coming to Earth was kind of a, like a step down for this character, you know, for, for Superman. You know, he went from this like idyllic, futuristic world with all this great stuff and great technology and all that, you know, the wonderful things that were there to Earth. And he wanted to present it more the other way around where Krypton had lost something along the way. And now it was just a cold, sterile place. And, you know, Jor-El even says it in this, that, you know, he, he in his thinking, Earth was going to be a paradise for Kal-El. You know, he was sending him somewhere wonderful that had something that Krypton had lost along the way. Plus, you know, by sending him the way they're sending him in the birthing matrix and everything means that when that matrix opens on Earth, Superman is then born on the Earth. And that was very important for Byrne. You know, he really pushed for that uh, in this origin because, you know, the according to him, the one thing that he wanted to do that DC turned him down on was that he actually wanted it to be Laura pregnant with the baby coming to earth and that she would give birth to him on earth and then she herself would die um and dc would not approve that they, they thought it was just a little bit too removed from you know quintessential superman so he did it this way where it's not you know the infant kal-el rocketed to earth it's literally the the fetus of, of kal-el rocketed to earth you know the, the unborn child you would think this would have done away with a lot of the obsession with Krypton from the pre-crisis. You know what I mean? The whole great row and the constant lamenting of what a great society was lost. Right. And again, I think that was Burns' intent, you know, from, from things I've read and in interviews he gave. I think that was very much the intent. There's a, there's a quote him somewhere it wasn't in the article i read today but i know i've read it somewhere where he felt that you know as a kid reading superman comics and superboy comics that every time um superboy or superman would say something like great krypton or, or great Rao or you know lament the loss of krypton or, or pine for his dead parents that he was spitting in pa kent's eye i can specifically remember that that part of the quote you know that he was spitting in pa kent's eye and I never thought about that when I was a kid, but I, I definitely see that now, that there's an awful lot of the older continuity stories where Superman or even Superboy, when the Kents were still alive and he was living with them, seemed more attached to those parents and, and that part of his life than he was to the Kents that had actually raised him. And yeah, so this, you know, this presents a more believable, um, you know, more reasoned origin. I think it's funny because growing up, uh, my mother had a friend who had two children. They were both adopted, you know, different parents. The daughter, they were the same age too, not related to each other, you know, separate birth parents. The daughter had no interest in her birth parents. You know, she had the attitude, oh, these people adopted me. They're the ones who take care of me, raise me. Her brother, same parents, treated the same way. 
He loved his adopted parents, but he had this obsession with finding his real mother. It's just interesting how that plays out sometimes. But I agree right. with you. I would feel it's more spitting and pause than I. Yeah. I definitely see that. I think that's the, the the great legacy of this reinvention by Byrne is that I think if if you could sum it all up with one word, you know, what was Byrne going for? What was he? What was his mission here? I think you could sum it up with one word, which is logic. He was trying to make logical sense of of the superman mythos and make it make sense and and not necessarily make it realistic or or more grounded or whatever but just he wanted to explain things and make things work i think that's how his mind works because he's done that with other tinkerings and reimaginings that he's done with other characters sometimes uh, with things that he ended up greatly criticized for, for like trying to explain like why the the robber snuck into the, the the Parker household and killed Uncle Ben, for example. You know things that you know apparently never bothered other readers. You know, but he he does some of that with this. You know, trying to explain things. You know, including you know how Superman's powers work and you know different motivations and everything. And for the most part I think I think he was very clever in how he did that with this I, I can't think of anything that he did with this that you know I thought was unnecessary uh, unlike you know some of the other things that he did with other characters before or late or after this okay all that said and that's kind of going into the whole reboot <laughs> and, and why you know and, and what he was thinking and all that just as an individual issue, what do you think of the way mm-hmm. he did on this particular story, as opposed to the overall, you know, uh, the the overall work that he did on the character? All right. Well, um, let's see here. I've got a I've got a lot of notes on this one. Um, skipping ahead. Um, the only other thing that ever bothered me about Burns' reboot is <laughs> in the very next chapter, uh, you know, it starts with Clark Kent, football hero. Um, I continue to be torn about this. I mean, really conflicted about this. Because on the one hand, if I divorce my mind from my feelings of sports and football in particular and jocks and all that and just try to look at it logically and try to figure out why did burn do this i I think it kind of makes sense because you know clark doesn't know where he's from he doesn't know his origins all he knows is that he's more powerful than everybody else and and you know why wouldn't he take that and run with it and why wouldn't that he only he parlay that into being you know whatever the the top dog thing in his town is which in this case is you know he's he's you know the big football star so from a logical you know story perspective it, it makes sense however um you know for kids like me who 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 grew up and, and didn't play sports and, and weren't particularly healthy and were 
very nerdy and everything and more inclined to read a book or be into science or science fiction or whatever. Clark Kent nerd, who is secretly the most powerful boy on the planet, was a very powerful identifier for nerdy kids like me. I mean, that's that's one of those power fantasy things right up there with saying Shazam and turning from a nerdy little kid into the world's mightiest mortal. You know, that it's a powerful piece of the Superman mythos, and this does away with it. And it, it not only does away with it, but it does away with it in potentially the most insulting way, which is taking him from being nerdy, nebbish Clark Kent. And that's a tough pill to swallow. And I remain conflicted about it to this very day. Um, but, you know, I think for the story, I think it does work. If I, you know, if I can just, you know, put those emotions aside of how I personally feel about, you know, that sort of thing, um, it, it does work. And I like where Byrne goes with it with Pa disapproving and, and looking at this and, and you know, he's not, you, you would think with, you know, and it's, it's very ironic. I, I just thought of this. It's very ironic that, you know, pre-crisis, how many times did we see Pa Kent, you know, secretly really uh, you know, like upset and, and pining for some acknowledgement for his son, Clark, you know, you know, I know that, you know, inside I know that he's Superboy, but I can I can never tell the world, I can never be outwardly proud of my son because, you know, the world saw Clark Kent's son as, as a nerd, as a loser. And so he could never show pride in his son in public. Now he completely the opposite. You've got a Clark Kent who's a football star who's loved by all of Smallville and Pa rather than being proud of him, is actually look at him disapprovingly because he knows, you know, the secret here. And I, I just, I find that very ironic. It's, it's actually pretty amusing. So I had a different take on it. Um, I didn't, you know, again, having read this as an adult, I didn't have the wish fulfillment aspect of it uh, shattered. Uh, it was more for me the, I'm reading the part of him playing football and I'm picturing Superman the movie when he's talking about playing football and Park Kent is immediately saying no. You know, I could score a touchdown every time, every time. He said, I don't know why you're here, but it's not to score touchdowns. And I think that was a powerful moment in that movie. And this, even though it has Park Kent, let me, let me go to pluses and minuses. On the plus end, it still has Park Kent disapproving of it. And I think he also articulated his disapproval really, really well when he talks about if you're make, if you're using your powers to make people feel less of themselves, then you're doing something wrong. And I really like right. that. I like that that piece of dialogue that they threw in there. And I don't know if I really paraphrased it quite correctly, but you know what I mean. Um, on the other hand, right. I also think that Paul would have made this very clear to Clark long before they got to the last game of the season. 
This isn't something that would just come up at the end of the year. He would have told him it when he said he was going to try out for the team or that he was going on the team. He, you know, shows up from, from school one day with, you know, a helmet and, and pads and he's ready to, to, you know, to be on the team. And, and Ken, Paul would have told him then, you know, this isn't what you should be doing. I, I don't think he would have waited till the end of the season. Um, on the other hand, they, they could have had a, an ongoing debate about it all season. And he, you know, Paul, I think Paul is the type of, I should say Jonathan instead of calling him Paul, but you know what I mean. Uh, but I think he's the kind of father who would, in that instance, think to himself, well, he's not actually hurting anyone. Let me find, let me guide him, but let him find his own way. So I, 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 right. I almost kind of feel like it should have been, there should, should have been something in the dialogue reflecting that this was an ongoing debate that they were having. And then I think I would have felt much better about it because I don't think he would have just sat back quietly and waited till the end of the season to let his dissatisfaction be known. That's the one one mischaracterization of it. But like I said, I think his, the way he articulates his dissatisfaction, I think, is excellent. Absolutely. I uh, I like. Oh, go ahead. I. Uh... See, this is for me, while I didn't love the Krypton part, this is where the story starts to turn for me, that I really liked it. See, for me, uh, and I'm going to speak sacrilege now, Scott, Superman the movie, greatest movie ever made, Christopher Reeve, as he is Superman, and I think I've said this before, I never liked that version of Clark Kent. For the, me, it the, was the young, the young, uh, no, the Chris, old Clark. Oh, because you thought he played up the nerd too much, too much, too much. I, I, for me, the original Clark Kent that I, I liked as a kid was George Reeves from the TV show. Me too. He, he, <laughs> he was not, uh, you could say a lot of that. He wasn't. A wimp. He wasn't. He wasn't a wimp. He was suave. He was aggressive. You know, he was a hard-hitting reporter. And just that persona, which they built up in the comics, too, pre-crisis, of Clark being such a wimp, it just didn't go for me. I like this, that he's the football star. I was never an athlete myself. But he seems like the type of kid who was the football player, but also wouldn't put up with anybody bullying somebody else. And I, I, my headcanon is that this was an ongoing discussion with Clark and Pa. Pa also, he's he seems to embody my favorite Jonathan Kent, which is Glenn Ford from the movie. Like you yeah. said, you're here for a reason. And it's right. not to score touchdowns. So in my Absolutely. head, Ken, they've been discussing this. I'm not going to tell you what to do, but I'm giving you the facts, and I'm a little disappointed that you didn't come to this conclusion on your own. But overall, uh, I, li- I like the turn it took in this. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm yeah, with you on the George Reeves aspect of it, because I, I always liked the way – you know, it felt like, like, yeah, I'm, I'm pretending I don't have superpowers, but I'm constantly winking at the audience. 
I, I was right. just I just enjoyed that because he was he as as cool. Clark Kent he was cool. Yeah, he was not a nerd as Clark Kent. He was cool as Clark Kent. He was just different from Superman. And it's not that he's a tough guy that he went out there and he became a policeman or a fireman. You know that he's physically he's using the power of the pen to fight for those who can't. He he's his own. Ver- you know what I mean? Clark Kent is a hero in his own way. Back then I'm talking about. Yeah, no, I agree with you. Don't, don't get me wrong. I'm, I'm not, I'm not pining for nerdy Clark Kent. I mean, cause you know, I, I think they took that way too far. I, I think somehow mild manner mutated into complete pussy wimp. Mm-hmm. And I never liked that. Um, but I'm just saying that with this, the pendulum has completely swung from one extreme to the other. You went from completely nerdy, nebbishy, you know, complete wuss Clark Kent to football star Clark Kent. And it, and it's just, you know, I, I think there's a balance more in the middle there somewhere. I think without the football star thing, I think this would have worked a little bit better for me because that's ultimately where, where my problem lies with this is I just don't like the idea of Superman – as a football star, it just it just irks me. Well, but, well, well, for me, where it falls apart with that is everybody in town knows what he looks like. No one sees Superman years later and goes, holy cow, it's Clark Kent from high school. You remember Clark before he started slumping over and putting on glasses? Yeah. <laughs> the yeah. coach didn't well, recognize him? Yeah, I had a note about that later, you know, later in the book where he says, you know, you know, meet the new Clark Kent. I'm thinking, well, he said that he's been living in Metropolis for three years by that point. So I'm presuming that he must have had, I don't know, a life, maybe a job. He must have known people. People must have known him. So what happens when all of a sudden he goes back to small or back to Metropolis the next day? And suddenly these people don't recognize him anymore because he's got slicked back hair and glasses now. I mean, he just or did he just abandon that old life? You know, was he living under under an assumed name? So, yeah, there's definitely there's there's a few holes in there. What's with the new Duke, Clark? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) You should have left it the way it was. You'd look like that guy, Superman. What do you think I of the really artwork in this? Oh, the artwork is is phenomenal. Um, I think pairing Byrne with uh, with Giordano for this was brilliant because uh, Neil Adams was one of Byrne's major influences in comics, you know, as an artist. And Giordano, you know, by having such a long association with Adams, anyway, uh, there's a a lot of this that is very Neil Adams. There, there's a number of Superman face, faces and poses and such that are so Neil Adams that it, it almost looks like a swipe or something. Um, I wish the pages were numbered, but on the page where Pa takes Clark home and then he's hugging his mother and he's looking down at his mother, I mean, that that Clark on that particular panel looks completely Neil Adams to me that it's amazing. It's so good. 
And there, there's a number of other uh, there's a number of other panels and such in this and, and shots in this that look very very Neil Adams to me, and that you know that's the the Giordano influence. So yeah, I, I really really like the art in this. There, there's very few instances of of weird or wonky. Most of it looks really really sharp. Um, honestly, I'm at a loss for weird and wonky. You said very few. I'm I'm really not seeing any. You want to point uh, any out to me? Yeah, I'm looking here real quick. I, I know there. I, I might be thinking of other chapters, but I, I know there there are bits here and there where I thought some of the faces might look a little weird or what. Um, yeah, maybe I'm thinking of other chapters of this because I, I I do believe it's the same team all throughout. But yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm but, not. But you know what? I'm, I'm going to say I'm, I'm going to kind of give a little preview of what we're going to do in a couple of minutes. And I thought the art in this issue is superior to the art in the next issue. So maybe we're going to see something there that might, uh, you know, maybe you got some of your weird and wonky there. And it's it's less that I think the art is bad in that issue. But more, it feels to me like they changed the style slightly, uh, and I, I I took it as an intentional thing, and we'll you know we'll get to this in a couple of minutes. Uh, but in, in this issue, this is this is what I want to see. This this is the way I want to see the the story drawn. This is the way I want to see the story inked, and it, and it's I think it's distinguishable from Burn Austin, which I love as well. But I think this is a brighter, cleaner art style than that is that one would, would be a little bit more uh I, I i'm i'm at a loss for words i was gonna say more complex but it's not more complex it's just more modern this this is mm-hmm. this almost feels a little bit more like a throwback a little bit uh and and i think the next issue is even thrown back a little further is what what it, what it comes down to uh but i just i just feel like this is for, for this story this is the perfect way to render it I, i'm really just you know i'm gonna i'm gonna jump ahead and just say i'm i'm giving the artwork an a plus in this issue i i agree i agree 100 percent. i think you hit the nail on the head <laughs> it is phenomenal it really is it's a beautiful beautiful book do we want to rate this and, and get to the second issue um Oh. Or do you have more notes? Yeah, I think you have more I notes. I think Scott's got more I've got notes. So many notes. Yeah, I've got a ton of notes. Um, I'll, I'll run through them real quick here. Um, I love that there's only one piece of kryptonite. We actually see how, how it gets to Earth because it sticks to the ship. Uh, when the when Krypton explodes, we see it get hit by a piece of debris. Um, and then we see a little bit later when uh, Clark and Parr in the field that Clark weakens when he approaches the ship. And again, that's because of kryptonite. We, we kind of learned this a little bit later in the story, but I love that. Um, I think that was one of the best things that Byrne did was say, okay, there's kryptonite, but there's one. There's one chunk, and that's it. Uh, he was not going to, or he was trying anyway, to, to prevent krypton or kryptonite from being you know, this ever-present crutch that it was pre-crisis, and, and I think that's great. Um, I like, you know, Superman being born on Earth. I, I think that is really cool. I think that, you know, plays into uh, other things later on, and uh, definitely other stories and such. Uh, using the storm as cover was really clever as well, so that, you know, there's 
nobody knows that Clark is adopted, which, you know, there were a couple of things uh, I remember Byrne commenting on, you know, like, why would, you know, if you're, if you have a secret identity and you're trying to protect that secret identity for one, why would you ever let anybody know that you have a secret identity, which he always thought was really, really stupid. And I agree. But then also why would the Kents, uh, you know, let, why, why would there be public knowledge that Park, you know, Clark was adopted in this? Uh, they don't even get him. You know, there's not the whole orphanage thing or anything like that. So not only does Clark not know, nobody knows. Only the Kents themselves. And I think that was really brilliant. Um, I love the, you know, the little sequence of, you know, Clark you know, gaining and learning about his superpowers. Because some of, you know, some of that stuff is very classic. You know, lifting up the truck is like right out of the movie. And then, you know, the scene of young Clark uh, using, you know, discovering his X-ray vision for the first time. That's right out of, you know, classic Superman origins prior to this. Um, but probably the thing I was happiest to see added to this is him learning to fly and the joy of flying. That's one of the things that Byrne brought to this character that I absolutely love is you can see that Superman just revels in the ability to fly because that's very realistic to me. If you could fly, if you, especially discovering that you could fly, I mean, that, that's a life changing moment. You know, that's, that's incredible. How thrilling is that? And it's cool to finally see that as, you know, part of his origin and, and really reveling in that power. Um, I like the, the little, you know, the cloaked man that we see uh, briefly in the field. And then he's in the very last panel of the book, the, uh, you know, the big splash page at the end. He's standing in the barn as well. We would get more of that character later on. So, you know, there's foreshadowing of, of later, you know, later developments and later things. I love Ma's scrapbook and that that would actually play out later on. You know, there's a, a little bit of foreshadowing with. Jonathan Kent saying, you know, well, what would happen if some burglar, you know, broke in and, and found the scrapbook and that actually happens, you know, down the road, that becomes a, a pretty important story beat. Um, I do miss the Fortress of Solitude. It's actually named here, you know, name dropped where, you know, Clark is saying that his secret identity will now serve as his Fortress of Solitude. And that was one of the things that Byrne said, you know, he was purposely doing away with that, you know, why would Clark ever need that? You know, you know, Superman doesn't collect trophies and, you know, Superman, you know, has his parents and, and, you know, his own life. He doesn't need this, you know, secretive fortress in the Arctic or whatever. And, and I have to disagree. I, I don't disagree with Byrne about very much Superman, but I, that's, that's an aspect of Superman I always loved was his Fortress of Solitude, you know, a place where he could go and it, it was just all his and he could be himself there, you know, as, as Superman. And that that part of that I do miss. So I'm glad that that eventually got brought in much later down the line. Um, this, the, um, what you call a space plane is not a space shuttle because Challenger had happened not too long before this, so they didn't want to seem insensitive or whatever. They, he wanted it to be big and dramatic and something pretty clearly a space shuttle, but didn't want it to be specifically a space shuttle, so that's why it's a space plane. Uh, what else have I got? 
I couldn't help but notice that Lois's hair is recolored in like every reprinting of this I've ever seen. In this original, uh, she has black hair, but in all the reprints, they recolored her to have brown hair, and I'm, I'm not really sure why they did that. Um, I've got tons more, but I'll, I'll stop it there just to say uh, I love the last two panels of the book. You know, Superman leaning down to kiss his mother on the forehead is just beautiful. I mean, that's just so quintessential Superman. And then that last panel of the book, you know, him streaking into the sky as Superman for the first time, that's just an iconic image, and it's just beautiful. I love it. It's, uh, it's something that somebody might use if they had something to say about Superman. <laughs> <laughs> and I love that the Kents survive. I, I yes. love that, uh, that they survive the origin story in this um, it's funny to think about it now, but I never really thought of it as a kid. But, you know, why Why do they need to die? Why couldn't they live? And that's where Byrne went with this. You know, he had the same thought. Well, why do the Kents have to die? They, they would be so much more interesting if they were around into his adult life. And I, I completely agree. I think they, they serve a really cool function in the story. And Superman needs more supporting characters anyway, you know, good supporting characters. So, you know, why not have his parents stick around? I, th I think when Superman first was introduced, and even into the 70s, I think uh, it was more common to have your heroes be kind of loners. Right. So I, th I think that was just kind of like a, a, a more common trope, not even necessarily for superheroes, but just your 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 hero of your story, whether it's a private eye or a, you know a, what it, whatever it might be. I just think that was that was a common story element. The, the orphan. You, you know, it's funny. Funny you bring that up. My mother is a bit of a geek. She used to buy comics when she was a kid. She is 80. She's going to be 81. So she was born in 1940. And she was commenting once about, you know, like Superman's an orphan, Batman's an orphan, Cap the real Captain Marvel was an orphan. Right. And she was saying... During the Depression, people gave up their kids because they couldn't afford them. And there were a lot of orphans. So maybe that played into that to some extent. These characters being created in the midst of the Depression. Hmm. That's possible. Yeah. Yeah, I never thought about that. But I mean, yeah, more, more relatable is, to that part of society. Superman is the ideal character from the depression and often he's the man of tomorrow with the bright colored outfit you know tomorrow will be better right but i'm i love i love the cancer alive for me that that was the complete sale on this because like you i felt it was great to have someone that he could go home to right Absolutely. Well, I remember pre-crisis, one of my favorite stories was the story, and I, I can't remember how it happened. Now, I know that there's some MacGuffin in the story to, that makes it happen, but there was a story where um, Pa Kent came back and visited grown Clark, you know, Superman, in Metropolis. And it's an alien. There was, an, alien. That was in, in Action Comics, reason. wasn't it? Yeah. I think it was three issues, right? Two or three. Yeah, I, I remember yeah. that story. Yeah. 
Yeah, and it was really good where it, it really was Pa Kent, and he had been given the the option or the 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 ability by I think you're right I think it was aliens or something to step ahead in time to see how his son wound up as a, as an adult because he I, I don't know he must have known or sensed that he wasn't going to live that long or something something like that and it was just a really nice charming story where we got Pa Kent back for just a minute and I remembered that so when I I heard or there was the rumor or whatever that in this reimagining that the Kents were going to live. I remember really being excited about that. And, uh, and I think it paid off really nicely. I think that there was some really nice, um, you know, post post, uh, crisis, you know, burn era stories utilizing the Kents. And, and this is definitely one of, I, I love the Kents in this. They're so real and believable to me as characters in a way that they never really were pre-crisis at all. They they just, I don't know, they never seem like completely fully formed characters pre-crisis to me, whereas here they, they totally do, because I've known people like the both of them. Uh, originally, isn't it Ma Kent makes his suit as well, except it's Kryptonian material, there's some yeah, it's from, it's from a blanket that he was wrapped in. Yeah, the blanket. Right. Yeah. So, so it's kind of cool. They do pay tribute to that, where she makes a suit. Yeah, I like that. I really like that. Well, uh, I'm ready for grades. If you guys are ready for grades, A's. I'm ready. Oh, sorry. There you cut out. Uh, I'm still here. Who wants to go first? Oh, you you did the synopsis. You should go first, uh, Scott. Okay. Um, Well, we have two covers on this, so I'll give a grade for both covers. Um, The special collector's edition one, the um, uh, direct sales market one, I think is a straight-up A+. I, I love this. I know it's very simple. I mean, it's just it's a, an extreme close up of Superman, you know, ripping open his Clark Kent shirt to show his ass. But it's just awesome. There's there's it's completely iconic. I, I love the trade dress. I love everything about it. I think it's just a great image. And I actually have one of those. Uh, I don't know what you call them. The wooden posters, whatever, uh, you know, wood art things that you put, you know, hang up on the wall. I've got this as one of those hanging on my wall. And I just love it. I think it's great. The other one, the um, newsstand version, so to speak, I like, but I'm not crazy about. And there's a couple of different reasons. For one, Clark Kent's outfit is really ugly. It's all brown for some strange reason. Um, His pants are way too tight. Uh, I do love that he's wearing sneakers, though. I've always thought that was really cool. Because, I mean, right away, this tells you this is a different Clark Kent. This isn't... You know, very stodgy Clark Kent in his, you know, his three-piece blue suit or anything. Uh, he's not even wearing glasses here. I mean, it's a, it's definitely a more modern take on the character. It tells you that right away. I think with a little recoloring, I'd like it a lot better. I just don't like the, the browns. It's just, I don't know. It's just kind of drab with the browns. Um, and I don't like the I don't know if it's supposed to be diamond or steel or whatever, but it, it doesn't look like steel to me. It looks like 
that there's that old Superman ad by I think it's Alex Saviak was the artist of Superman with the magic snake where he has to change it into different forms. He's trying to figure out where the toy man is hiding. You, you know the ad I'm talking about? I don't remember. And that's, that, that's what yeah. these letters remind, remind me of is the magic snake ad. It just it looks like it's made out of crystal or something. It just I don't know. It just doesn't work for me. So this one I'm going to go just a B. It's just not as dynamic as the other one, I think. Um, interior art, I completely agree. It's a straight-up A+. Um, I don't know what I was thinking was wonky. I must be thinking of something later on uh, in the miniseries, because, yeah, on a quick flip back through this, no, I'm not seeing any wonky in this. I think it's it's beautiful from start to finish. And, you know, any art where I can easily look at it and go, wow, if I didn't know better, I'd think that this was Neil Adams. I mean, I can't think of much higher praise than that. It's just, it's it's a beautiful book. Uh, Byrne and Giordano mesh so, so well. And uh, this is just straight up iconic. So yeah, straight up A plus on the art. The story is the tough one for me because, I mean, I really get the feels from this issue. I, I, I love what happens in this. I love the reimagining, but there's just, there's, as I said before, it's not perfect. There's still a couple things that bug me. Um, I realized that they wanted to have Superman by the end of the issue. So it can't help but be a little, I don't want to say rushed, but it's a little condensed. I, I you're missing the scope and grandeur of like Superman, the movie where, I mean, that movie is split up into pretty three pretty equal parts between Smallville or between Krypton, Smallville and Metropolis. Whereas this Krypton really gets the short shrift. Not only do we only get two Kryptonians, one of whom is extremely unlikable, um, but it just, I don't know, it loses something. I you just, I don't feel anything for the destruction of this planet. And that, that's sad to me. Um, as I say, I'm still conflicted about the whole football thing, but once you get past that, um, to where it's Clark and Pa in the car together from that point forward, I, I think the story fires on all cylinders. And I think it's just an incredibly awesome origin story for Superman. Um, so I'm just going to take a little bit off for the beginning of the story, you know, just a point or two. I'm going to say I, I think it's an A on the story. Um, it's, it's not quite an A plus, just you know, for the things I talked about. But it, again, I think it's one of those things where you know the, the whole is greater than the sum of its parts, and I'm still going to give the book overall an A plus because I mean, if you had to do this, if you had to, you know, reinvent Superman. I don't think it's ever been done better in comics than this right here. So, yeah, it's it's great. Top marks. Um, before I, I give mine, I, I have a question. Um, do you think they had in mind or they knew that they were going to put out those miniseries like a year or two later? world of Krypton, the world of Smallville, the world of Metropolis. And that maybe they, you know, I don't know. Don't go into too much detail. We're going to make more money off of this. That, that's I, a possibility. Know, that's a good question. I, even if they didn't necessarily know they were going to do it, I can't help but think that, that 
Byrne hadn't spent a lot of time thinking about the backstories of these characters and, and potential story ideas that eventually became those other uh, those other miniseries or anything. I will tell you, not to tangent this too much, but I will tell you that the whole backstory of Krypton in World of Krypton, their Clone Wars story in that is the Clone Wars story I wanted for the Star Wars prequels. Uh, yeah. It's that good. Um, they, I mean, he just took those two words, Clone Wars, and, and wrote the exact backstory that I thought Star Wars should have had. Um, if, you know, you guys listening, if you've never read it or you haven't read it in a long time, check it out. It's awesome. Uh, it's, it's a really good story that deserves the name Clone Wars. But uh, my grades would be, and I agree with you 100% that that's the Clone Wars story we should have gotten. Yeah. But, uh, I give an A-plus to the Special Collector's Edition. I bought the, I bought actually when I bought the first two issues, I bought the three comics because they had both covers in the comic book shop. The Special Collector's Edition's always been my favorite, and the, the issues of this mini series are the only thing I kept when I divested my whole collection in the uh, early nineties. So that's the sole holdovers. Like I said, I give that an A+. The other one, I, I am also not a fan of the brown suit. I'm guessing they were trying to combine it with the imagery that's used when he saves the space plane. Uh, it's, yeah. uh, it's, it's a bad choice. Unless they, you know, they were really trying to draw the line where... We're not going to put him in a blue suit because that's what they used to do all the time. That's that's what I'm leaning on, and and I agree with you. It's a bad suit choice. I don't think I don't think it's it's very fashion conscious. But I also never thought of Clark Kent as somebody who I, I never I never picture him as a slob, but I also never picture him as a clothes horse. You know, that's going to really be going out of his way to find the right outfit. My bigger my bigger uh, criticism of the outfit on the cover is more what Scott mentioned about how it's just a little too form fitting. Uh, you know, it, it, he bends over, that thing's ripping apart. Right, uh, yeah. But, but as far as the color, you know, you know I, th I think they were just trying to get away from the always wearing a blue suit. It could right. also be some symbolic of earth tones that he's completely of earth now. That's possible. Right. Yeah. But despite that, uh, I'm going to go with uh, a, a B plus on that cover, because despite all that, I Still prefer the other cover. The art and the issue itself, A+. Plus. Beautiful. Could look at it all day long. The story is a little tougher. Was Like I said, I'm still not thrilled with the concept of Krypton. I'm stuck with Buck Rogers because I'm held up on crap that's been gone for years. Reading this the first time, ultimately, I liked where it went. I love that the Kents are alive. It took, as a first-time reader, way back in the 86, the processing that Superboy has got. Yeah. Because you, you, I was so used to that. And like you said, the Fortress of Solitude's gone with it. But overall, 
I love what they did. I like the story. Love the can't get past how much I'm happy with the Kents being alive. I'm giving the story an A. So the overall grade for me is an A plus. Okay. Uh, I've seen the other cover, the the collector's edition one, but I don't have that one. So yeah, I agree with you that that's a superior cover, but. I think this cover really fits the miniseries where, where they kind of had a theme going with the covers. Uh, so you almost have to look at this in the grand scheme with the other covers to kind of appreciate it, I think. Um, I don't think this is bad at all. I think the artwork on it is good. I think this, the ship could have been a little bit more detailed, a little bit more, you know, just, just a little bit more rendered than it is. Uh, and and the brown suit, yeah, I agree. And the the ridiculously tight trousers go to uh, uh, you know Dan Aykroyd and Steve Martin on uh, being two wild and crazy guys with their tight slacks. <laughs> uh, Maybe it's Kryptonian material; it won't rip when he bends over. Yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, just the same, I I think it's a pretty sharp cover, and I, I'm going to give it an A minus. I I think it's still pretty good, and like I said, when you consider it with the other ones, I think it all falls into place. The interior artwork, I I, I just can't gush enough. I think it's a, it's an A plus. It's incredibly solid. Now I think I divest or diverge from you guys on the Kryptonian aspect of the story because yes, I agree that Lara's incredibly unlikable. I think that was the first point I made when we started talking about this issue. But I like the fact that he created a new thing and he did it really quickly and left a lot open to be looked at later. So is it the detailed version that you'd want? Because you, you could almost do a full mini series or, or a full series just on the Kryptonian aspect of Superman's origin. You, right. know, you, could just, you could just run wild with that. But clearly, as you mentioned, you want to have him in uniform by the uh, by the last page. So, you know, he had to pace it out. And, yeah, Krypton took short shrift, but it also, I think it, it, it left a lot a lot of nuggets on the table to be looked at later. And, and I don't really have a problem with that. So I'm thinking Byrne really did as well with this as he could. Uh, I, I like the new concepts of Krypton in it. So I'm going to say an A on the story and it, was it an A on the story, an A minus on the cover, and an A plus on the interior artwork. So overall, and I'm going to say exactly what you said, Scott, that the the uh, total is is more than the sum of its parts, and the book is just an A plus. I think this is a great book. Now we started off a little too uh, ambitious that we were going to cover three issues today, and we cut it down to two issues, and I think we are still overly ambitious trying to do two, because I think if we try to do the second issue now, we're going to end up zipping through it and not really give it the attention it deserves. So I'm going to suggest that we hold off till next time for that one. I think you're right. I think you're right. Because we're, we're, we're about, I think we're about an hour and 20 minutes into this episode. So, okay. I mean, it's not that we couldn't do another one, but I think, I think We'll start to, to lose energy and we'll rush through it. And I don't want to do that. No, I definitely don't want to do that. So I think we're going to call it a day on this one. And thank you, everybody, for listening. And we'll be back with issue number two of Man of Steel. So I, I think we went from a two-part episode to a three-part episode. And now I think we're at a six-part episode. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> now, looking back, I, I just just to, to touch on it quickly before we totally zip out of this, uh, I looked back at prior issues, and issue number four of this miniseries was covered back in episode 142 of uh, of the show. And if looking into it a little bit, if, if my memory of it and, and what I saw is correct, I think it was me along with David Price from 11 O'Clock Comics and Sean Whalen from Raging Bullets covered that one. Uh, so this this will be a different take on it because although I'll be on it with, again, you know, it'll be you two guys giving uh, the most of that one. So I don't think it's a problem to cover that one a second time. Excellent. Cool. Wow. All right. So uh, thanks, guys. Thank you, everybody, for listening, and we'll catch you next time. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to our show, and we hope you'll continue to join us each and every week for more good old-fashioned comic book back-issue awesomeness. You can contact Back to the Bins to leave feedback, comments, questions, suggestions, and criticisms via email at bins at twotruefreaks.com or by joining the Back to the Bins group on Facebook. Back to the Bins is a proud affiliate of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, which you may find at www.twotruefreaks.com. Two True Freaks is a registered trademark of Demanzo Corps of Milan, Italy. All rights reserved. Please take a moment to stop by the twotruefreaks.com site and check out their many other fine podcasts, won't you? Thanks. And we'll see you next week.